and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science. Back on your airwaves again for 2021. I have to say thanks a lot to Claire for putting together an International Women's Day episode for last week. This week, Claire's taking the week off and with me on the air this week, I have back from the wilds of his home, Chris. Hooray! Yes, I am here. Hello. Yes, but Chris is back and he is back with a story, of course. Yeah. Uh, what's your story for us this week, Chris? Well, Steve, I feel like I've missed a lot. You know, I've been away quite a while, so I've missed a lot. And I'm trying to catch up on the things I missed. And um, one of the things I've missed, of course, was International Women's Day. But I thought I would do a story about gender roles, but like really, really old gender roles. Um, there are some recent archaeological discoveries that have raised questions about some of the assumptions we have made about ancient societies. So it's long been assumed that, you know, back thousands and thousands of years ago, that men were the hunters and warriors. But there has been evidence from numerous burial sites recently that shows that thousands of years ago, things may have been more equal than we assume. And possibly even more equal than they are now, potentially. Potentially. I mean, it's it's a bit hard to tell with the, the distance of time. Um, but yeah, that's possible. Or Look, it may be that even um, these aren't new discoveries so much as just new interpretations of old discoveries, as, um, as I will address. Interesting. I'm not going so far back in time myself, but I am going to have a little look this week at an island, an entire island, which was basically used as an experiment by a botanist from the mid-19th century. He decided that the island didn't look the way it should, and he decided he would plant a whole bunch of things from other places, pretty much just to see what would happen. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what did happen and uh, what effect that's had on the island's ecology so i'll be talking about that later in the show uh and chris will be digging down into archaeology so please stay tuned have made clear before that I'm generally not a big fan of evolutionary psychology. If you know what evolutionary psychology is, it's kind of a, a field where people 
they look for reasons from the distant past for the way that people behave today. Uh, and it's often just kind of these, I suppose you call them like Rudyard Kipling's just so stories. And they used to explain uh, people's preconceived ideas and excuse, often it's fun to use to excuse um, current inequalities. And very commonly, these inequalities are concerning gender. So have you ever heard people make claims like, you know, that the gender roles we see today um, come from our hunter-gatherer ancestors? Well, yeah, and, you know, even more outrageous claims that um, men are from Mars and women are from Venus, but I think that's a slightly different... Yeah, that is uh, but yeah, biologically implausible. Are, yeah, it is. Uh, pe- people, people have often said, you know, women are better at child-rearing and men are better at, you know, fixing cars or, you know, whatever, whatever things. Mm. It's a pretty common sort of... Uh, uh, claim that we're biologically built differently, so we do different things better. Yeah, and that we have evolved that because of the way we behaved back in the um, in uh, the, often you know the um, the Paleolithic or Paleocene and and that sort of era. Um, now it is possible and also quite legitimate to dismiss all of that by pointing out that's true that we're that even if things were unfair in the past, it doesn't mean we can't change it now. I mean, that's the whole point of advancing as a species, anyway. But I think it's also worth pushing back because this is also an example of something that you're not supposed to do in science, which is to start with an attitude, in this case, a very unhealthy attitude, and look for evidence to support it rather than, you know, have a hypothesis and try to falsify it with the evidence, which is a way that we say science is meant to work. It turns out that there is evidence that could falsify some of these ideas, and some of it may have been hiding in plain sight all along. But um, we'll start with the new evidence first. This is a paper published in the journal Science Advances. It was published in October last year. Uh, It was actually the cover story of that issue. Not that cover stories really mean anything in science, but the journal had a picture based on this article on the cover, which is, yeah, that's saying something, I think. Yeah, I mean, a cover's a cover, you know, like you made the cover of a, a science journal. It's not quite as not quite the same as making the cover of i don't know cosmo or time magazine or something but still yeah person of the year um 8000 bc kind of thing (laughs) but anyway the focus of this paper was mostly on one particular individual that was found in a burial site called uh, i am going to apologize for my pronunciation here it's called uh willamaya padija or something along those lines. Um, difficult to pronounce for me because it is in South America. It's in the Andes on the western shore of Lake Titicaca in Peru. Now, this person, they labeled them WMP6 because they're the sixth person found in the site. They were buried with some hunting tools about 8,800 years ago. By analyzing the bones and the teeth, the uh, archaeologists determined that this person was, in fact, female, aged about 17 to 19 years old. And, you know, given that they're hunting tools and also that there are animal bones found in there as well, they concluded that uh, she likely hunted deer and vacuna, which is kind of a, a llama-like creature. Is, isn't that what they bred llamas from? Something like that? Something like that, yeah. A, a wild version of what is now a llama, I suppose. Yeah. Now, I guess one of the things is that, that um, the argument that used to be, I guess you'd hear, is that, okay, just because you found... You know, so you found a female skeleton with some hunting tools doesn't mean that she was actually a hunter. But look, take the case of another individual found at this site. This was WMP1. Um, this is the only other one who was found buried with hunting tools. And this one was a male, aged 25 to 30. And this is the thing, like we find a male with hunting tools and we assume that they were a hunter. But when it's a woman, people start to question this. 
And so the, um, the archaeologists in this study have very rightly said, well, what if they were a hunter themselves? Um, certainly analysis of the skeleton is completely consistent with the fact that this person was active and involved in hunting. Um, but they also went to look and see whether there were similar kind of cases elsewhere. So they went and looked at uh, other burials, documented burials in Central and South America from the similar time period. And of 27, they found where there was hunting artifacts with the, with the individual and that the sex of them was known, 11 out of the 27 were female. So it suggests it's not just kind of an isolated case. It's not so uncommon after all. And that perhaps we had some assumptions about the ancient world um, fairly wrong. And there are other archaeologists elsewhere who are making asking the same sort of questions. There's um there's some studies and remains in California. They were looking at signs of violence, in particular injuries from sharp objects. And again, you know, in a case like that where there's a male skeleton, people assumed that the person was a warrior. But um, they found that the female skeletons in this population had a similar rate of injuries. So again, why not assume that they were also warriors? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I guess I guess that's the thing is if the basis of your of your claim that the men are warriors is that they have a particular kind of injury and then all the women have the same kind of injury. It's the same argument. There's no, why would you give weight more weight to one than the other? It doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, I guess it comes back to this idea of the assumptions of current modern day gender roles and then projecting them back into the past. And this is, yeah, it shows that some of the, um, the assumptions uh, have been kind of misplaced. Uh, a less violent story, but a similar one, is from a study published in March this year that looked at some remains from Bronze Age Spain. This was about 3,700 years ago. And this particular burial site, there was a, a couple, a man and a woman, who had a lot of jewellery on them, you know, a lot of gold and silver and various things. But the woman had much more than the man, including a spectacular silver diadem. Uh, if you've seen your Harry Potter, you know what a diadem is. It's a kind of crown or tiara type thing. I have seen Harry Potter, but I did not remember that fact. Now, again, this is not the first woman to be found decked out in such a way. Um, and previously, there's also been a, you know, a gendered interpretation of this. People will say, oh, well, their husband must have been a very powerful warrior or something, for instance. But as with the hunters we looked at before, um, you know, often when you find a uh, some remains with a lot of artifacts with them, you assume that the person who has them is the owner of what they were buried with. So um, in this case, if the woman in the couple has more riches, perhaps she was the more powerful one of the pair. Now, this is obviously, this is of course is another interpretation that where they were putting on, on these remains with limited data. And none of it, you know, definitively proves that the older sexist assumptions were wrong. But what they're basically doing is questioning why those sexist assumptions were made in the first place and whether we should perhaps, you know, start to look at things in a different way. It's, I guess putting modern ideas back on the past, but their modern ideas are a little bit kind of more old fashioned than we would like them to be. Look, one of the interesting things, I guess, is that you know, regardless of what the interpretation was there, there has been clearly a lot of gender inequality in the millennia since these burials. You know, even in the societies examined and the areas examined, the if there was say equal distribution of um, hunters and warriors back in um, back in this time period, say 8,000 or 9,000 years ago, things have changed in the intervening years due to changes in technology and changes in social structure, etc. But, you know, those might be these more recent developments, not something that we can say is we can blame on our ancestors and the way that they behaved and the way that we, um, 
we began as a as a species spreading out throughout the world. Also, perhaps when we call these kind of things Stone Age attitudes, we're getting that slightly wrong as well. I'm Maggie Darren Pocock, and you're listening to Lost in Science on 3CR. Ecology is a relatively new science uh, if you compare it with things like physics, which is how stuff moves around, and chemistry, which is, you know, how different substances interact with each other. People have been looking at that sort of stuff for a really long time. Biology is a pretty old science as well, uh, kind of looking at how 
individual organisms work? How do they actually do the things that they do? How do plants grow? How do animals eat? How do they digest? All that sort of stuff. But ecological thinking really didn't come into its own until after Darwin and his theory of evolution by natural selection became established and began to be accepted by science because ecology itself is, is the science of looking at the interaction of these individual organisms, which we sort of already study in biology. How do they interact with each other? And how do they interact with the environment? And ecology is really looking at how those interactions of organisms and their environment lead to ecological systems or what we now call ecosystems. Now, ecosystems exist in all parts of the world, uh, sometimes very complex ecosystems like coral reefs or rainforests where you've got hundreds or thousands of different species interacting, sometimes very simple in some very, very uh, extreme environments on Earth. Maybe only a few microorganisms might be involved in those ecosystems, but they're still ecological systems. They're still the interaction of those organisms and their environment. Now, in ecology, it has been thought that all kinds of ecosystems take millions and millions of years to become established and that they'll change over time as the environment changes and as new species evolve in those environments. There's an island halfway between Brazil and Angola in the Atlantic Ocean. And the Atlantic Ocean isn't, you know, it's not the world's biggest ocean, but that's still halfway between Brazil and Angola. It's pretty isolated. There's not a lot going on where this it's island the, is. It's like the second biggest, which is still pretty big. It is, it is. But, you know, it's right in the middle. There's nothing around it except more ocean. But this island has potentially changed that idea as what appears to be a new ecosystem has been created in less than two centuries. Darwin himself visited this island, Ascension Island, in 1836, and he described it as hideous. He said it was hideous and treeless. <laughs> it, it, not, not a very nice, not a friendly description of this. Uh, you know, you would think that the guy who's traveling the world looking at different, you know, different environments would be a bit more uh, open to differences. But no, hideous and treeless. Basically, it is uh, a leftover... Um, volcanic cone it's got very little vegetation on it only about 30 plant species present on the entire island and in the way of you know there was no large animals there was some couple of species of birds there was insects there was not a lot going on on this island now a fan of darwin's a botanist called joseph hooker wondered if the island could be what he thought improved by bringing plants from all over the world and allowing them to establish and just watching what would happen. It was sort of a now botanical point, garden kind of thing. Yeah, almost like a, a wild version of a botanical garden, I guess. Now, at this point, it, it seems like a pretty standard colonialist view of this island. Uh, bring in new stuff and grow what makes you know, grow what works, whatever might make a profit from whatever country I'm I'm working for. Um, and that's, you know, that happened all over the world in, in all different parts of the world as well. Ascension Island didn't have any people living on it 
it's very unusual in that it was a completely uninhabited tropical island. Um, so no one had no one had sort of uh, laid claim to it, partly because there was nothing there. It didn't. It was really hard to to support uh, human life, certainly on this on this island. Now on Ascension Island, as I said, things were more or less left to run wild. So they brought these plants in, uh, and what what actually happened is that they changed the look of the island and actually influenced the climate of the island as well. There's a large hill in the middle of this island called Green Mountain basically became covered in trees and other plants which were planted on the island from 1860 onwards by a horticulturist called John Bell who was working for the British government and the island itself was used as a you know as a as a port a stopping point for naval and commercial ships because it was right out there in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean it was a handy place to stop off and make sure you you know could have a bit of a rest and not you know give your sailors a break. But it wasn't long before the soil had started to build up from the increased organic matter from the trees and other plants that crops actually started to be viable on the island. So they actually started to be able to farm crops on this island uh, after after only you know a few decades of, of this establishment of these trees. What they were doing is what we might call terraforming if you wanted to use a modern term for it. The increased plant canopy led to higher humidity above the island because the plants were um, trapping air and stopping it from moving but evaporating moisture out of the soil which was sort of sitting above the island if you've got increased humidity you end up getting increased rainfall and that's exactly what happened so they improved the rainfall on the island which in turn led to better plant growth and they set up a sort of a feedback loop which generated eventually better soils and increasing plant growth over the years after these plants became established. So it's only a small island though, I take it? Yeah, it's, you know, it, it, it's only it's only a matter of, you know, a few hundred square kilometres. It's not, it's not a huge um, island at all. It's quite small. Yeah, they love um, to create a new kind of microclimate or new climate just by changing the vegetation yeah yeah it's quite amazing what they what they managed to achieve hooker's original idea was to make the island as i said in his terms better which in his mind meant better for human habitation and the island does now have a population of almost 900 people who live there all the time um it's not it, it is it is primarily military based still so the navy is is still there uh, but there's a lot of civilians who support the, the Navy. So they did improve it for human habitation. And the vegetation on the island has also changed dramatically. There are now forests on the slopes of Green Mountain. And many of the indigenous plants grow bigger and stronger among these exotic species that were brought into this island. The experiment demonstrates some very interesting concepts which may be applicable to restoration of degraded landscapes in other parts of the world where forests might have been damaged or they might have been removed completely through you know logging practices or whatever that might be one of the big questions i have about this experiment as interesting as it is is whether this is still actually classifiable as ecology many of the plants that existed on this island are still there and by some measures are doing better in ways 
than they were before this experiment was was started. But other plants that used to be there have apparently gone extinct. They haven't been able to find living specimens of these plants that were definitely there when they started the experiment. So the question is, is this, um, you know, is this actually still an ecological system or is this a human managed system which is actually producing a result that the people want um, rather than just being an ecological system which is you know what ecologists would be looking at the naturally occurring um, plant species and animals and all of those sorts of things um, how can you, how so can you plants... tell that i guess the difference i mean considering that i guess if there weren't people there you could see what would happen if there weren't people managing it but the same token most of the world has had people managing it for millennia anyway. Well, that, that's absolutely true. And that's, I guess that's a, a big question about ecology itself is what do you consider a natural ecosystem uh, in the first place? Certainly this one wasn't, um, you know, before I think the first uh, British base was put on there in 1815. Um, and it wasn't until 1860 that they started planting all this stuff. So... Um, I guess before 1815, you could probably say it was as natural as it could have been, um, but certainly it has changed since they've since they've made all these changes. It's an interesting way to compare that that sort of untouched ecology versus what happens after humans start manipulating it. I, I do think it's an interesting thing, you know, as far as you know the 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 plants, the the indigenous plants that were there. Some of them, I said, are doing better than they were before. Um, but is that better for the plants or is that just better from a human perspective? It's like it's a, it's a healthier, stronger, bigger plant. But is that an evolutionary advantage to the plant or is it just something that humans prefer to see? A nice, green, happy, large plant that, you know, we, we know that plants grow in all shapes and sizes. And in some places, the best thing to be is a little tiny, little sickly looking plant. Um, it's not mm. up to us to decide what's a good plant and what's not. But it is it, the other thing is that it's such an isolated and and previously uninhabited location. It's easy to see more vegetation as an improvement, but the original ecosystem of Ascension Island has been more or less lost, and would have been an interesting thing to study in its own right as a sort of isolated pocket of what does a, what does an ecosystem look like in its early days of establishment? Because by geological estimates, the island itself is only a million years old which in geology terms is a baby, effectively. So, you know, that, that in itself would have been an interesting thing to study and, and keep monitoring over the years, but we can't do that now because it's got all these other plants in it. Just to finish up um, my take on this, and, and someone has, uh, a guy called David Wilkinson published, um, it's not really a study, it's more of an essay uh, in the Journal of Biogeography in 2003 about Ascension Island and he was saying that um, you know it's an amazing uh, you know um, example of how we could potentially construct ecosystems and, and improve um, landscapes and all this sort of thing but I think you know we come back to this question of who are we improving it for and I think we already know we can make landscapes more friendly for particular human cultural needs and preferences the question is should we do that everywhere or is this experiment an example just a micro scale version of colonization 
um, which, unlike many other versions of colonisation, no humans were affected in the uh, in the colonisation project. It was only plants, but it's still it still to me seems like a very very nineteenth uh, century approach to to uh, exploration and um, evolutionary experiments. That's all we've got time for for this week and we are rapidly running out of time. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. We are broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. And if you would like to tune in next week, Chris, Stu and Claire will get locked in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.